We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. Today we ask, when will offshore wind go truly global? We've heard a lot about offshore wind in the last decade. The world now has offshore wind farms totaling 35 gigawatts in operation. That's enough to power more than 20 million homes. The biggest turbines are now as tall as the Eiffel Tower. And offshore wind wants to be a backbone of the global energy mix. But here's the thing. Growth has been confined to only a handful of countries, the UK, Germany, China. So what does it really need to go truly global? To help me answer this, I'm joined by Olivia Breeze. Olivia works for Danish utility Orsted, which is one of the biggest developers of offshore wind farms. She's had a ringside seat for the growth of the sector over the last decade. And I have absolutely no doubt she'll play a key role in the decade to come. Hello and welcome, Olivia. Hi, Natasha, and thank you for having me. So, Olivia, let's start with an easy one for our listeners. Um, If there is any listener who doesn't know the answer to this, uh, what does Orsted do? Uh, We are a Danish, we were originally a Danish utility who is, or pretty much has now, fully transitioned into being the world's largest developer, constructor, owner and operator of offshore wind farms. Um, globally, I would say globally. Uh, we also have onshore wind and solar in the US. Uh, we have a gr- and we also have a growing green hydrogen business. So you mentioned you're in in the US as well. Is is the primary focus over here in Europe, or what other countries are you in? No, not. I mean, historically, our footprint was very much Northern Europe. We're fifty percent or fifty one percent actually owned by the Danish state. So our focus has historically been Northern Europe. But over the last five or six years, we've very much moved outside Northern Europe uh, and now have a rapidly growing business on the east coast of the United States. This is all offshore. Uh, We also have a a rapidly growing business on the east coast of the United States, where we've got nearly three gigawatts of offshore wind under construction uh, and a significant development pipeline coming up behind. And we are also developing and constructing nearly two gigawatts in Taiwan over the next five years with a further development pipeline to come. And we're also very actively developing projects both in Japan and in Korea. I think we'll definitely have to um, dig deeper into some of those jurisdictions later. But maybe just to start with, um, I know you've been in Orsted for a long time now, but um, do you want to explain to the listeners where you fit in into the, the Orsted machine? 
So we did a reorganization um, about a year ago in order to really strengthen our customer proposition towards creating a world that runs entirely on green energy. And in that context, we have regionalized um, the majority of our commercial work. So market development, project development is all regionalized. EPC and O&M remain global. And I also have one of the remaining global jobs on the commercial side of the organization, where I'm senior vice president for portfolio development and strategy, which gives me responsibility for our strategy globally, for all our M&A, so both our strategic partnerships and also the divestments we do to financial investors. And then finally, um, commercial innovation and uh, our bids. Commercial innovation is definitely something I think we're going to have to delve in a bit deeper. And um, I was going to I was going to actually ask you more about that later on in the podcast. But w- why don't we kick off now? And um, could you could you explain to the listeners what you mean by commercial innovation? Yes, of course. So it's a real mixture of things. I think one of the things that's been re- most remarkable about the sector over the last uh, decade has been the very very rapid fall in cost. Um, And of course, that has an enormous amount to do with technological innovation, with increasing sizes of turbines um, and other technological developments. But it is definitely also the case, at least in my view, that commercial innovation has played a very large part in that. So, for example, if you were to ask why is Ersted uh, one of the the largest, by quite some way, of the offshore wind developers, I would say it's because of our Uh, model of selling 50% of each of our assets to financial investors at or shortly after taking a final investment decision, which has allowed us to recycle capital back into the development and construction of more offshore wind farms. So we only ever own 50% and we get significantly more bang for our buck. And in that context, the innovation, it's not so innovative now because I think pretty much all of your listeners will have been involved at some point, either directly or indirectly in an Ersted deal. Um, But the original commercial innovation was the structure which enabled our partners to raise project finance on their half of the asset, because we ourselves prefer to use balance sheet financing. More recently, I could point you towards the uh, influx of institutional debt providers and the structure we developed, which brought the first... uh, credit uh, investment grade rated offshore wind bond to the market in Germany three or four years ago. Um, And most recently, perhaps the uh, corporate PPA that we signed in Taiwan on our Greater Changhua 2B and 4 offshore wind farm, which is 920 megawatts. So at at the time, that was the largest corporate PPA in the world. Wow. <laughs> That's, there's only one thing to say about that. Wow. Um, well, look, thanks for shedding some light on um, the Orsted uh, commercial innovation structure. I think it is, you are right, it's becoming um, widely accepted and known in the market now. Um, I was actually going to touch upon sort of the European market, but I'd be interested to know, actually, have you exported that model then in other jurisdictions or is it a model that you're just using in the UK and Europe? So most recently, we exported our model for the first time outside Northern Europe um, and have actually just signed before Christmas a 50% sale of our Greater Changhua offshore wind farm 
to a consortium of an international investor, CDPQ, who we've worked with before, and a Taiwanese private equity fund, Cafe PE. So that is a real validation of our model, particularly as they were both able, or as they jointly were able to raise the debt that they needed on the 50%, their 50% share of that asset. That's really interesting um, to see that your model now being exported and um, in those developing markets. Um, we've seen real success and growth in particularly the UK market. Um, other than um, your model, which is uh, very innovative, it, have there been other things in the UK that have driven that success and that also other jurisdictions should look to learn from? I think there are a couple of things that the UK has done. Um, I guess I started my career in UK offshore wind uh, 20 years ago um, in the rock regime, which I'm sure you also remember. Um, and for the UK, it's really been a con. I see that growth as being driven by a combination of obviously absolutely excellent conditions, um, both wind and also bathymetry, but also a very, very clear strategy by successive UK governments that offshore wind was going to be an extremely important part of the energy mix. So that clear pipeline of opportunity and also the CFD structure, which was introduced um, in 2015, I want to say, I'm hoping you're going to confirm, uh, which was introduced around 2015 or maybe slightly before, uh, that has really enabled not only sponsors such as ourselves, but also the supply chain to invest very heavily in the UK and it is that focus and localization that's enabled the scale up and the costs to come down. And if you look to Taiwan, we worked, as lots of developers did, we worked very closely with the Taiwanese government as they were looking to put in place their own regime. And of course, it's different to the UK, but there are two critical factors that have enabled their costs to come down very quickly and their local content percentage to increase. And again, that is long-term visibility of pipeline both for uh, auctions, but also very importantly for seabed availability. It's also uh, a revenue support mechanism, which ensures uh, consistent, stable power prices. Maybe um, for our benefit of our listeners, if we could delve a little bit deeper into um, how the revenue structures work, maybe starting with the contracts for difference in the UK, there may be some of our listeners who are not familiar with that um, support regime. So could you tell us a little bit more about why that works so well for the offshore wind developers in the UK? So the way that the contract for difference structure works is actually much more straightforward than the name sounds. Really what happens is that the government runs an auction every 18 months to two years. Developers bid the price that they that they feel able to construct an offshore wind farm for um, on the basis of seabed that they already own. And that's an important quirk of the UK market. And then the contract for difference is really an agreement between the asset and the government that the government will pay the asset the bid strike price regardless of whether the power price is higher or lower at the time of the power being generated. If the power price is higher, then the asset returns that money to the government. If the power price is lower, the government tops up the difference. 
That's really helpful. Thank you very much. Um, looking at sort of other jurisdictions now then, so we've talked about the UK, um, you've mentioned also your operations in Asia um, and the US, and maybe we can come back to the US in, in a little bit, but are there any other emerging markets in the offshore wind market? I think it's important to remember that emerging markets in the offshore wind world is not quite the same as emerging markets anywhere else in the world. I remember when the US was an emerging market for offshore wind, uh, Americans were always very offended when we referred to it as an emerging <laughs> market. Um, but when I think about the market that uh, we will be developing assets in over the next decade, certainly Japan and Korea are a big part of that. Um, Vietnam is certainly coming up everybody's agenda very quickly. Um, if you then look a little bit closer to home, perhaps into the Baltics, we've recently signed a two and a half gigawatt joint venture with the Polish state utility PGE, which we're very excited about um, and which forms a good cornerstone for our expansion into the Baltic Sea and in markets. When I look there, I also think particularly of Sweden. And then as you go to the, as you go perhaps um, over to the UK, you know that the, there are obviously already some Scottish projects, but the Scottish government is planning a large leasing round later this year. And then in the US as well, Biden has just come out with uh, a very significant infrastructure plan uh, and announcements in relation to future BOEM leases. And actually that kind of transparency from the Biden administration about the timing for those BOEM leasing auctions going forwards is going to be an extremely important way for them to regulate the offshore wind build out over the coming years. You're right. I haven't often heard of the US, Sweden and Scotland being named as emerging <laughs> markets, but I, I get your point. So picking up on the point you made about um, the US, the recent announcement from the federal government in the US being really clear about uh, the timing and consistency of their auction uh, program. Um, do you think other countries can learn from that? Do you think that's the right way to go? I think absolutely. If you think back to the conversation we were just having about driving down the levelized cost of energy and how best to do that. A really important part of that is pipeline. And a really important part of pipeline is uh, clarity on when seabed will be available for developers to acquire. Um, and increasingly, we see that the markets which are most successful in driving down the cost of, en the cost of electricity are markets where that seabed is either freely available, like in Sweden, um, or where it is made available consistently and transparently on a regular on a regular cycle, so that it's possible for developers to plan ahead. Yeah, again, um, it's something I think that has come up in the past, um, that visibility and pipeline in, in the UK. So it is probably something that we other countries should um, look at in seriousness. Changing tax slightly now, there is a question I'd be intrigued to see what your view is. Um, and that's in relation to um, clearly everybody moving to that net zero, the low carbon transition. Um, I'd be interested in what your view is on what impact you think the oil majors will have in offshore wind. We're clearly seeing a big movement um, by them in this area. Do you see them as competition? I mean, of course, in the sort of obvious way and in the short term, they are competition. You know, we do compete, for example, with Equinor in New York, 
um, with uh, Equinor again, funnily enough, in the UK leasing auctions we've just had. So of course, in a, in the short term, they are competition. But actually, when I think about the challenge that the world faces in getting to net zero, and I think about the myriad of skill sets and the amount of capital, frankly, that we need to get us to net zero and the build out targets globally for offshore wind, frankly, I think the more companies who want to bring their expertise to the table, the better. Certainly, the majors have skills that uh, the northern European developers either don't have or are only just developing, whether that's the ability to operate um, in very deep water or it's the ability to operate fluently in complex political environments, such as Brazil, where they have been operating for decades. I think there are significant opportunities for all of us, not only in recognizing that that we need collaboration in, uh, in reaching society's end goal, which is to have a world that runs entirely on green energy, in fact. That's a great answer. And I think, you know, collaboration and partnerships, we're all in this together and we're all on the journey. It's um, it's good to hear that. Um, you were touching upon earlier commercial innovation, um, which clearly um, that structure and the work you've been doing has really paid dividends for you. Um, looking at other sorts of innovation, clearly technology um, has really had a big impact on the offshore wind market. Um, but what innovations other than the commercial side of innovations really do you think have driven the market? Um, so certainly the uh, uh, the investment made by the turbine suppliers in developing their technology so that turbines get larger and larger, that uh, has significantly reduced the cost of energy uh, on a per megawatt hour basis. If you think back 30 years to the very first offshore wind farm, where the turbines were, I think they were less than two megawatts, and they were basically onshore turbines that uh, had been dug out into the sea, and the turbines that we are working with now are 15 or 16 megawatts. And that's really only probably 20, 25 years later in the R&D cycle. That's quite remarkable. But we also see significant other technological innovations, which are perhaps a little bit less visible in every sense than the um, turbine, the size of the turbine growth, which is what always grabs the headlines. Um, we've seen the uh, offshore export cables become increasingly more sophisticated uh, and indeed we're moving very much now the industry is moving very much now towards uh, HVDC which is a much more efficient way of transmitting large amounts of power to shore um, and you're also seeing the sort of funky AI stuff or uh, drones for example being able to be used for blade inspections and actually a really important part of these sorts of technological innovations is that they also make the industry much safer. Um, and HSE has been a, an increasing focus of the industry as it gets to scale. And one of the things that I find most, most exciting about the sort of technical innovations that we're seeing now is that they're very focused on reducing the hours, the sort of man hours at risk. 
So also looking at innovation, you mentioned it earlier when we were chatting about Taiwan. Um, so, you know, on the face of it, corporate PPAs are not innovative. I've been working on them now for over 10 years. But I suppose when you take them in the context of offshore wind and the size of these transactions, then that can be seen as a, a an innovative uh, movement in uh, the right direction for offshore wind. But do you see do you see that as the future for offshore wind? Do you see a move away then from governments having to support offshore wind transactions? I think what I see is a move away from a market which was very much dominated by government offtake over the last decade and towards a much more differentiated market and that differentiation will take place both obviously internationally but also even within markets so that there will be a mixture depending on the complexity of the project or its size or on government need or indeed corporate need. I expect there to be a real mixture of offtake opportunities for developers, whether that offtake is government, whether it's uh, corporates looking to transition themselves uh, to running entirely on green energy, or actually whether it is corporates who want to take that green energy and ultimately convert it into green hydrogen and possibly even into X, whatever X might be in that context. It could be ammonia, it could be e-fuels, um, and use that then for their own downstream activities. So I absolutely think we're moving away from, from the old model, and the next decade is going to see some really exciting new models of, uh, of offtake opportunities for offshore wind. Interesting times. I can't move on um, without coming back to a, a subject matter you just raised now, which is the role green hydrogen have, has to play in the energy transition. Um, how do you pair green hydrogen with offshore wind? Is that a solution for us? Do you think it's going to play a big part in the low carbon transition? I think it's going to play a huge part in the low carbon energy transition. I think one of the things that's um, that's going to bring down the cost of green hydrogen or that's going to close the cost gap between green hydrogen and what's called grey hydrogen, which is hydrogen which uh, involves fossil fuels in its making, is definitely going to be not only scaling up the efficiency and size of electrolyzers, but it's definitely also going to be very much driven by the cost of the electrons and also the, and also the size of the installations which are used to provide electricity to those electrolyzers. And offshore wind is not only capable of providing enormous amounts of green electrons at scale, obviously because it's enormous and at scale, offshore wind is not only capable of providing uh, green electrons at scale, it also has a very consistent load profile and um, it is also possible to predict relatively accurately when the uh, asset will be not only operational, but also blowing because the offshore wind speeds are so consistent. So we expect it to be possible to pair uh, an offshore wind farm with a large electrolyzer extremely efficiently in order to be able to drive down the cost of um, green hydrogen over the coming decade. And actually, we just announced yesterday our plan to develop one of the largest renewable hydrogen plants in the Netherlands, which will ultimately lead to gigawatt scale electrolysis in the Dutch Flemish North Sea port cluster. And that will be connected to a two gigawatt 
offshore wind farm, which we expect to build off the coast of the Netherlands. Really exciting. I was going to ask you whether Orsted were focusing on green hydrogen, but clearly uh, that's super interesting. Before moving off technology and innovation, uh, I think listeners would really expect me to also cover off floating offshore wind. It's had a lot of publicity. There are a lot of pilots around at the moment. Is that also something um, Orsted are looking at? Floating is definitely something that we're looking at extremely actively. Um, We're not actually involved in any of the pilot projects. But that is really because we are taking a very active watching brief on the various floating technologies which are out there. We see ourselves as technology agnostic. So where the right solution for a customer, whether that customer is a government or whether it's a corporate, where the right solution for a customer is floating or where the right solution is fixed bottom, then we will be in a position to deliver that solution over the over the coming years. I expect commercial scale floating offshore wind towards the second half of this decade. Um, and certainly as we get in to the early 2030s, there will be very significant, very significant amounts of floating, um, not only in Scotland, which um, is expecting to be leasing floating areas as part of the upcoming Scotwind lease round, but also in the UK, which is running its own floating leasing round, and also across the North Sea, and then particularly when you start to look to Asia, where there are very deep but where there is a great combination both of very deep seas and also a significant demand for electricity. Right. So it's a, a watching brief for Orsted at the moment on floating wind. And we all know when um, you move into an area is ready to be commercialised. OK, so looking forward now, we have asked all our guests to the podcast what changes they would expect to see by 2030. So, again, I'd be really interested to hear your view on that. I feel like we've spent most of the podcast talking about what I think is going to happen <laughs> towards 2030. Um, we've talked about floating, which I think is definitely going to be a feature. We've talked about green hydrogen, which I expect to really start to scale up again towards the second half of this decade. When I think long term, I'm really thinking 2040 and beyond. And what could Ersted's pipeline look like? What could the world look like in 2040? And how do we make sure that we are setting ourselves up both as a company, but also as a society for long term success you know, post 2030? And in that context, I expect to see significant numbers of genuine emerging markets. When I say genuine, I mean uh, economically emerging markets open up for offshore wind uh, towards the end of the 2020s, probably for development, and then into construction post-2030. And I would definitely there, for example, be looking at Brazil, which has the ability to deliver offshore wind at considerable scale. Um, But particularly also when you think about the long-term potential of green hydrogen and uh, power to X, it's important also then to start thinking about where do you need to site your power sources in order to produce that green hydrogen or power to X as efficiently and as low cost as possible. And so I think in that context, we'll also see a lot of very interesting markets opening up to service that demand. 
that's that is really interesting to get your insight of when actually the world and the market truly becomes global for offshore wind. So um, I've asked the last question for all of our guests on this podcast, and I think I, I can already I can already guess what your answer will be. But um, are you hopeful for the future? If I wasn't hopeful for the future in the job I'm in, then frankly, I don't think the world could be hopeful for the future. I think that the world, the both the world and the future are getting greener and greener and brighter and brighter. And it's a super exciting time to be at the forefront of it. That's a great way to end our podcast. So look, thank you so much for your time, Olivia. It's much appreciated. Not at all. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you can join us for the next episode of the Climate Transition Podcast, when we'll be asking the hydrogen age, fact or science fiction. I'm Natasha Luther-Jones, and on behalf of DLA Piper, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. (laughs) 